Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 17 on Alice's Adventures, and we're going to pick up where we left off with Humpty Dumpty's poem that he afflicts Alice with, despite her pleas. <clears throat> so, um, anyway, that's, uh, that's where we're going to begin uh, here this evening. Uh, first, I just wanted to uh, make a note. I was talking about this in my Exploring the Water of the Rings class last night. I just wanted to I uh, just wanted to share, make sure that folks were aware. Um, with the Signum Press that we have started, one of the things that makes the Signum Press different in our approach uh, to publishing works is that we are, we are really planning, we are setting out to establish a very different kind of relationship between the press and the readers. Um, we want as a press not just to be, uh, you know, your supplier of materials, though, of course, we do, hope to apply, uh, to supply you with materials to read and listen to, um, and watch. But we want to, we want to be more than that. We want to do more than that. And one of the things, one of the, the, the visions that I've had from the beginning and, and that we've been really pushing forward with the press, uh, has been ways to engage people, ways to engage readers. There are a couple different ways that we're going to be doing this, um, but the, the sort of one of the biggest and most exciting ways that we're going to be doing this, kind of involving, no, not kind of, definitely involving uh, readers in the entire, not just publication process, but really the whole creative process from the beginning, um, uh, is through what we're calling writers, uh, author circles. Um, so um, I'm, for instance, publishing my next uh, my next book, Exploring the Lord of the Rings, Volume One, uh, with the press right now, and I have been meeting now with my author circle for several months. So what this is is the author circle is a way to become a patron of a particular author that you would like, to, you know, whose work you would like to support. It's not about just getting VIP access to a particular work in progress, though. You do get that, but that's not sort of the point of it. The the philosophy of it um, is that you are uh, you are really becoming, as I say, a, a patron or a supporter of a particular author that you want to support. Um, it the it's a a member. There's a a, a monthly membership fee of twenty five dollars a month, um, and that money goes to is divided evenly between the press to help to continue to make possible the publication of the work. But also to the author uh, 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 personally, uh, fifty percent of it goes straight into the pocket of the author to help to support them while they're writing the book, um, whatever project or projects they are in fact currently working on. Um, but anyhow, so uh, I've been, as I said, I've been meeting with my author circle now for several months. Um, I was the, I kind of was. Uh, guinea pigging uh this program uh because i i kind of came up with the idea and so i i i was the one experimenting with it and man has it been awesome uh my author circle is not only a tremendous encouragement to me as i'm working on this project um but is like my uh my sounding board my accountability group i meet with them every month um i have started just this past month i've started you know i've been talking things over with them and they've helped me to shape um and work through some of the ideas and and um kind of big picture planning uh, struggles I've been having here at the beginning of the project. Um, but now I'm every month sending them materials. They just were reading a draft of a chapter and, and we just uh, met to talk about that a couple days ago. Um, and man, what a wonderful 
session that was. Um, such delightful feedback from them and excellent suggestions. Uh, it, it's just been, it's just, it's just been awesome. I am, I am so looking forward to the rest of this process, to continuing um, the process of writing the book. In a lot of ways, I enjoy writing, um, but I have never. Uh, been one of those people who enjoys the lonely author life, uh, you know, just leave me alone to go into a retreat and 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 write uh, uh, by myself. Um, having a group of folks who are with me to support again to again support encourage um, uh, and to uh, uh, you know to give criticisms and input. Oh man, it is awesome. It has been so cool so far. And I am, as I say, I'm so looking forward to that continuing journey. Um, so I just wanted to invite people. Uh, if you, um, if you go to, hang on a second, let me, I think I lost my, uh, yeah, I did lose my other page. Hang on a second. Um, if you go to the press page, which is just this one here, uh, press.signumu.org, and you click on the authors. This is one way to get to it. There's a bunch of different ways. Um, you can click on the author that you are interested in in supporting. You can see this little symbol down under our picture means we have an author circle currently running. Um, so you can click on, here's the project that I'm working on right now, um, some information about the author circle. And so you just hit sign up now. It takes you to BlackBerry, which is our registration system. And you can see here, we have available author circles for five different authors now. Um, uh, people that you might want to, you know, jump in with and support, be with from the beginning as they're working through uh, these books. I think it's going to be really, really exciting to be a part of this process. Um, and I did want to emphasize again that it's not about just supporting a particular book. It's about supporting an author, about supporting the person, not just about the book. So, for instance, that means if you're doing more than one project, like, for instance, Mike Drought has two projects that are going on with us right now. We're publishing his book, uh, They Teach You How to Think, Why the Liberal Arts Matter. Uh, and we're also publishing an ongoing audio series by Mike Drought called Exploring Beowulf, where he's going to be going through the whole poem Beowulf sentence by sentence and doing uh, audio commentary, both on the uh, on the sort of the the story on the sort of literary history on the uh, connections to actual history on the linguistic stuff, like, uh, uh, you know, everything he's kind of doing a full commentary sentence by sentence going through Beowulf. Um, so he's going to be releasing that um, as he goes along. So his author circle will be able to, uh, to, to, you know, talk with him, ask questions and stuff about his Beowulf material as it's coming out to talk about his liberal arts book as it's being published, all these things, uh, all these things going on at once. So anyhow, it's been as I have loved my author circles. I just wanted to invite folks who um, uh, who hadn't heard about this or were interested. Uh, I would love to have you in my author circle. I encourage you to look into our other authors whom you might want to uh, to join with and support. It's been a really cool thing. There are going to be other ways and other opportunities in which you can be involved. Um, but uh, but this is sort of the main one, and this is the one that's gonna that's gonna get you most access to the to the to the person, to the author, and to the and to the process. So anyway, that's the thing I wanted to share with you tonight. And now let us jump into uh, jump into the poem, which I stopped myself short of beginning last time. Um, 
in its way, I find this poem one of the most fun poems of the entire book, actually. I'm not saying it's the greatest poem of the entire book, um, but I just, I just love this poem. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to read it all the way through, the whole thing all the way through, uh, and then we'll go back, okay? In winter, when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. Only I don't sing it, he added as an explanation. I see you don't, said Alice. If you can see whether I'm singing or not, you've sharper eyes than most, Humpty Dumpty remarked severely. Alice was silent. In spring, when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Thank you very much, said Alice. In summer, when the days are long, perhaps you'll understand the song. In autumn, when the leaves are brown, take pen and ink and write it down. I will if I can remember it so long, said Alice. You needn't go on making remarks like that, Humpty Dumpty said. They're not sensible, and they put me out. I sent a message to the fish. I told them this is what I wish. The little fishes of the sea, they sent an answer back to me. The little fish's answer was, we cannot do it, sir, because... I'm afraid I don't quite understand, said Alice. It gets easier further on, Humpty Dumpty replied. I sent to them again to say, it will be better to obey. The fishes answered with a grin, why, what a temper you are in. I told them once, I told them twice, they would not listen to advice. I took a kettle large and new, fit for the deed I had to do. My heart went hop, my heart went thump, I filled the kettle at the pump. Then someone came and then someone came to me and said, the little fishes are in bed. Oh, sorry, there we go. I said to him, I said it plain, then you must wake them up again. I said it very loud and clear, I went and shouted in his ear. Humpty Dumpty raised his voice almost to a scream as he repeated this verse, and Alice thought with a shudder, I wouldn't have been the messenger for anything. But he was very stiff and proud, he said, you needn't shout so loud. And he was very proud and stiff, he said, I'd go and wake them if... I took a corkscrew from the shelf, I went to wake them up myself. And when I found the door was locked, I pulled and pushed and kicked and knocked, and when I found the door was shut, I tried to turn the handle, but... There was a long pause. Is that all? Alice timidly asked. That's all, said Humpty Dumpty. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just love this poem. <laughs> uh, yeah, and can I just say, is that all? <laughs> I can't imagine. Is is the uh, response uh, that a um, poetic reciter is primarily looking for. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, uh, all right. I'm trying to figure out how to approach this. Okay. Let us begin now. Of course, I have included all of the prose interruptions for a reason, as I think they're a very important part of how this poem proceeds. But we can't start with those. So let us... Um, uh, okay. <laughs> let us... Um, let's just focus on the poem as much as we can, we're going to have to overlook a lot of the things which are putting Humpty Dumpty out, and perhaps us too, in our analysis. And let's do what we usually do. 
let's first try to understand the oral vocabulary of the poem, right? Then we'll think about it. Then we'll place it into its context, which in this case, of course, means with the prose interruptions as well. Okay. In winter, when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. In spring, when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Okay. Um, so, um, <laughs> Tomas says, I can see, now see uh, where Dr. Seuss got his inspiration. Uh, Lewis Carroll's use of meter is so good, right? Um, I don't know anybody. Um, and I will include Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss is a genius uh, in his use of poetic meters. But um, not even Dr. Seuss is as fluid and comical at using perfect or near-perfect rhythms so often. Um, anyway, what's, what's just looking at these first two pairs of lines, the first four lines that we get here, what, are the, what is the basic pattern? What is the basic sound pattern of this verse? In winter when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. What's the basic pattern? Before you even count feet, what's the basic pattern? In winter when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. What's the basic syllabic pattern of this song? In spring when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Iambic, for sure. Extremely iambic. Iambic, you'll remember, is unstressed, stressed, right? Bum 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 bum. In winter, when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. Bum 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 bum. How many, how many, uh, how many feet now? In winter, when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. So you are absolutely correct, Jack Rabbit. That is Hobbit meter. We are in iambic tetrameter, at least so far, but I think we're going to stick there. In spring when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. All four of these lines, in spring when woods are getting green, all four of these lines are perfect iambic tetrameter. I mean perfect. No variation of any kind. In winter when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. In spring when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Right? Keep going. Does it keep going? In summer, when the days are long, perhaps you'll understand the song. Yes. And notice, when you start putting in three-syllable words or more uh, in lines that have absolutely perfect meter like this, you just show it off. Right? Perhaps you'll understand the song. In autumn, when the leaves are brown, take pen and ink and write it down. See that fourth line there uh, is a more typical kind of um, uh, perfect, perfect line. Um, all monosyllables. Take pen and ink and write it down. Notice the unstressed syllables are almost all conjunctions or you've got like and, and, and it are three of your four unstressed syllables. The take at the beginning is a verb, which is a little bit unusual to have as an unstressed syllable, but you've got the two nouns, pen and ink, which are real. And of course, the hard P at the beginning of pen also helps to um, bring, the, bring the boom down on that syllable. Um, 
take pen and ink and write it down. Um, eight lines, perfect iambic tetrameter so far. I sent a message to the fish. I told them this is what I wish. The little fishes of the sea, they sent an answer back to me. The little fish's answer was, we cannot do it, sir, because... It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, uh, the other thing that I would just point out, especially with iambic tetrameter, iambic tetrameter... Because iambic tetrameter kinds of kind of comes across like four four time in music, like a march or something. I know there's a whole lot of things in four four time, but um, when you are perfectly regular, or even close to perfectly regular, with your meter and you're writing an iambic tetrameter, the risk is that it's going to become real bouncy and really sing song. Now, of course, there might be times as a poet when that's the effect you're trying to go for. Right. Um, but notice how he varies things. He I, I don't think that he accomplishes that entirely. I, he's not avoiding it in summer when the days are long. Perhaps you'll understand the song. Another thing, by the way, notice the lines. Notice the lines, um, the, 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 the end of the lines. Can you dance to this poem? Oh, man, you can easily dance to this poem. Yeah. Um, Am I suggesting it's better to be a regular Arthur? Yes, generally I am. Um, a poem which has no variation from the meter at all, right? Um, is like, um, I don't even think about, again, if you, uh, I don't have the vocabulary to talk about music in the same way that I can talk about poetry, but, um, if you think about the establishment of a simple melody, right, at the beginning of a piece of music, if that melody gets repeated without any variation at all, right, um, it would become, even if it's a very beautiful melody itself, it would become very tedious, right? Um, well, not necessarily for Dauntless like many trumpets braying on a single note. Um, it would be... Um, uh, it would be, it would, it's what I'm talking about is more like, um, what I'm talking about is more like, uh, uh, again, if the melody is repeated in one instrument and the, like the one instrument just keeps playing that same melody again and again, and again, without variation, right. Um, that quickly becomes tedious to your ear. Right. And of course, a good poet, like a good composer, is going to take is going to take the melody and play with it, going to take the rhythm and play with it. Because, of course, really, the the meter isn't the melody, even it's the time signature. Right. And it's how you establish the time signature in in the ear of your reader. And then you can dance with it. Right. Um, it, you don't. um you know, you don't have to keep, like, pounding on the beat every time, right? You can, you can syncopate, right? You can, uh, again, you can kind of spin off into different versions of your melody, um, which might interact with it in different ways. Or, uh, to use another example from another highly sophisticated genre, take, for instance, the relationship 
between Eminem's rap lines and the meter and the 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 beats of the bars um, in his uh, in in the beat that he's working with. Um, extremely, there's a lot of regularity there, um, but a lot of sophistication in how those two things are interacting with each other. Anyway. This poem does nothing of the sort, <laughs> right? Um, and notice the end of the lines as well. Um, what do you notice about the structure of the lines, the shape of the lines? Not just the rhythm now, but the um, the, sh- the, the shape of the lines. One of the things, remember, that I often like to look at Um, when we're talking about, again, the sound patterns of poetry. How does it, how does it treat the lines? Is it, how much enjambment is there? Enjambment, remember, meaning when one line runs on to the next one? Um, Or is there not enjambment? Are there breaks at the end? You'll remember when we've been looking at some patterns of enjambment, and that's one of the things that Lewis Carroll has played with at various other points. Um... Good. Okay, so JJ, that's very good. Um, uh, pairs of lines tend to be complete sentences. Yes, yes. Um, I agree. That's very important. And we get breaks between the line, almost all the lines. In winter, when the f- fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. Now, that's not a. a it's, it's not like a full brick. It's not like a period or semicolon, right? I mean, it is one sentence, but it's not exactly enjambed either. That's why there's a comma there, right? The comma there sort of signals there is a bit of a pause there. In winter, when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. In spring, when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Um, no, no real momentum continuing. In summer, when the days are long, perhaps you'll understand the song. In autumn, when the leaves are brown, take pen and ink and write it down. Um, so we have a very similar, um, a very similar syntactic structure in the sentences as far as that correlates with the lines, right? As well as this ba- same basic pattern: um, short pause after the first line of the pair, long pause after the la- the second line of the pair, and that too is very. Regular. Now, we do get more, I agree, Mahed, we get more um, at the very end here of this second slide. The little fish's answer was, we cannot do it, sir, because that is the first sort of real enjambment that we've gotten, um, uh, that we've gotten of this, uh, uh, of that kind, right? Um, though, notice that in that couplet and the one after it, we don't get commas at the end of the first line, but I think we still get a kind of a break because both first lines are introducing direct quotations and the second line gives us the direct quotation. So like when you're starting a direct quotation, you almost inescapably pause, right? That's kind of why we conventionally put a comma in before that, in a sense, I think, right? I sent to them again to say it will be better to obey. Even that's not true in jamment. Right, um, because that second line stands alone as a direct quotation, just as the previous one did as well. The, the little fish's answer was, "We cannot do it, sir, because 
right? It is, I agree, there's a little bit more than, um, you know, in the earlier ones, but still not... Um... Oh, Mojit. Okay, sorry. I wasn't sure how to pronounce your name. Very good, thank you. Um, yeah, so... And I think that we see that keep uh, continuing on. Uh, yep, I'm just kind of scanning now. Look at all those colons in that stanza. Yeah, for the entire poem, we're going to get this same. Um, we're going to get the same, same pattern. Okay, so that's interesting. Exceptionally regular in its meter, in its metrical rhythm. Extremely regular in its line structure. And of course, though I didn't even mention it yet, but it's perfectly obvious, equally regular and insistent in its rhyme scheme as well, with its simple rhyming couplets. Rhyming couplets, monosyllabic rhyming couplets. White, delight, mean, green. Long, song, brown, down, fish, wish, see, me, was, because, say, obey, grin, in, twice, advice, new, do, thump, pump, said, bed, plain, again, clear, ear, proud, loud, stiff, if, shelf, myself, Locked, knocked, shut, but so I'm, I'm looking through the whole poem to see if there are any exceptions, because this is one of the things that sometimes happens, right? Sometimes when you have this much rigidity, this much regularity in a poem, you're getting set up. You're getting set up for, I don't know what, some kind of payoff sometimes. Um, if the poet is extremely regular all the way through, you're going to, it's going to really stand out when they deviate from that regularity, right? So I was peeking ahead to see if we got a, but no, no. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So it doesn't look like we're getting it. Okay. One of the consequences of this kind of a sound structure. The combination of meter, line structure, and rhyme scheme is we're getting a, a very I want to say fragmented verse. And this of course is emphasized by the fact that line breaks tend to be inserted between every pair of lines, right? In winter, when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. In spring, when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. In summer, when the days are long, perhaps you'll understand the song. In autumn, when the leaves are brown, take pen and ink and write it down. I sent a message to the fish. I told them, this is what I wish. I mean... Even in the first four, where we're, there's a clear motif tying those first four couplets together, right? With the seasonal thing that's going on, winter, spring, summer, autumn. Um, 
And so those seem to hold together, and yet it's really hard to read them as if they were an eight-line stanza or set. They don't feel like a stanza or set. They sound like four, um, four separate little couplet stanzas, right? Which do kind of form a progression, but which don't really seem to bind together in this way, apart from the fact that they're repetitive, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I agree with you, uh, uh, Majid. They are very, um, very strong, uh, very strong rhymes. Uh, very strong, very simple rhymes. Very simple, straightforward meter. Very simple, uh, rhyme scheme. Very predictable line pattern. So where's the catch? Because I think there's a catch here. Let's think about the content of the poem then. In winter when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. Okay, so in spring when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Um, the seasons. What's the relationship between the first and second line of each of these stanzas? That I, I mean, not the sound of them, but the meaning of them. In winter, when the fields are white, in spring, when woods are getting green, in summer, when the days are long, in autumn, when the leaves are brown. Um, is this some contemplation of the annual round? Is there some something being said or invoked about the particular natures of the seasons, imagining why are we being asked to imagine snowy field, the snowy fields of winter? The springing green of woodlands in the spring. The long evenings of the summer. And long, slow sunsets of the summer. The browning leaves and turning back towards winter in autumn. What, is the f what does that have to do with what he says in the other four lines? The other four lines are... I sing this song for your delight. I'll try and tell you what I mean. Perhaps you'll understand the song. Take pen and ink and write it down. The other lines... The other lines are about the poem itself. That is, the poem immediately announces in line two that it is a song about itself. Right? I am singing you a song about the song that I am singing you, is what we're told, right? In winter when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. Okay, so you're, you're singing a song about when you sing this song. Okay. Then, 
this, so the first step is I sing this song for your delight. The second step is I'll try and tell you what I mean. So are we going to get like an ex, an explication of the song from Humpty Dumpty? Like he just finished explicating the, the, the Jabberwocky song. Is that what he's hinting at? So first comes the singing of the song, then comes the helpful explication. Then third comes the understanding. Perhaps it doesn't necessarily, it's not inescapable, the arrival of understanding or her arrival at understanding. But in any case, that's what comes next, right? Perhaps you'll understand the song. And then the fourth step is take pen and ink and write it down. Right. At the end is a paper. I don't know if she's assigned to write a paper about it. Um, but, uh, Okay. So four-step process. I'll sing the song. I'll try and tell you what I mean. Perhaps you'll understand it. And then take pen and ink and write it down. So, okay. What is being... Since apparently the subject of the poem is the poem, and he's going to tell her a poem about telling her a poem, and about her, what she's going to do in response to the poem that he's telling her, right? So it's an extremely meta-literary experience from the very beginning, right? Um, and again, his the progression he's asserting is, I'm going to start off by singing it for you, reciting it for you. Then I'm going to explain it. Then you're going to understand it, maybe. And then finally, you're going to write it down. You're going to, like, memorialize it by writing it down. Perhaps in your memorandum book, which she has with her. Remember, she has a memorandum book that she did the sum form, 365 minus 1. Um, she might take pen and ink and write it down in her memorandum book once she understands it. But then we combine these two things. One, the meta-narrative about the poem and its reception and the poetic imagery about the rotation of the seasons. Right? And when you put those two things together, it gets a little bit funny, doesn't it? He sings the song for her delight in wintertime, and then he comes around and explains it in the spring, but she doesn't understand it until summer? And maybe she'll get around to writing it down in autumn. Like, that's, that's a protracted process right there. This, is, this, is that what he means? I mean, maybe he's speaking purely metaphorically, but the visual images that he suggests when the fields are white, uh, when, the for, when the trees are getting green, when the days are long and all that kind of thing... Um, seem to suggest a literal changing of the seasons. Um, I mean, is he really expecting she's going to be taking the next year of her life, meditating, receiving and meditating on this, on this song? Agreed, JJ. This is way worse. Um, Humpty Dumpty's presumptions about his audience are even, are even more uh, um, inappropriate than my own. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> you write still shorter than my book writing. Fair enough, meow. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Um, okay. But then moving on, I sent a message to the fish. All right. So he now shifts into a first person narrative. Well, he was in first person before, um, or at least he began there, right? As, um, you know, I sing this song for your delight. I'll try and tell you what I mean. Um, and then he was uh, talking about what she would do in response. But now he returns to himself. I sent a message to the fish. So when I say shifts into first-person narrative, I mean he's now telling a quite different story. He's no longer... that Those first four couplets seemed... Had they have the feeling of some kind of preamble, right? Uh, some kind of preparation for the narrative that's about to come. Uh, it would seem to be a sort of warning that his song is going to be hard to understand. You might not understand it for a few months. Right? Well, six months, up to six months, perhaps more. Um, but now he's segueing into the narrative proper of this poem. And there's a lot of messages going on. So what happens? What happens in this in this uh, um, in this poem? Um, I sent a message to the fish. I told them, this is what I wish. The little fishes of the sea, they sent an answer back to me. The little fish's answer was, we cannot do it, sir, because... What's the joke? What's... What's going on here? Or what's the problem with what's going on here? Oh, yes, JJ, you're right. It was Mighty Felix who said, made the joke about me taking long, a lot of time with the poem. What's wrong with this narrative? It's a perfectly fine narrative in almost all respects, right? I mean... Our lines are perfectly smooth. Our rhymes are perfectly good. Our structure is uninterrupted. Our, uh, our sentences are grammatical. What is this narrative missing so far? He's communicating with the fish, the little fishes of the sea, presumably the same fish to whom he's sending messages in that fifth couplet. They send an answer back. What's the problem? The thing that it's missing, this is not a subtle question. The thing that it's missing is, I don't know what, everything? Um, anything, uh, if we had to say, the first thing that we notice is that he uses a pronoun that has no antecedent. 
I sent a message to the fish. I told them, this is what I wish. This... This what? This what? What, what, what does he wish? We don't know what this points to. This is a demonstrative pronoun, right? It points at things. Um, this is what I wish. What, what, what do you wish? And then they answer him and say, we can't do it. Do, do, do what exactly? Y you know, it, which still has no antecedent. Because, wait, because why, why can't you do it? So we, he is telling them he wants them to do a thing. They're telling him they can't do the thing for reasons. But we don't have the faintest idea what the thing is that he's asking, nor, of course, why they won't do it. I sent to them again to say, it will be better to obey. Obey what? The fishes answered with a grin, why, what a temper you are in. I told them once, I told them twice, they would not listen to advice. I took a kettle large and new, fit for the deed I had to do. <laughs> this is my second favorite line. Well, I don't know. It's in my top five lines of this poem. Um, oh, man. This is, I, I feel like that for the fourth stanza on this page is where the joke really starts to pay off. So we have this conversation, this demand and refusal, and we have no idea what the actual subject matter is. And now we're just going back and forth. It will be better to obey. He insists upon his initial demand. And they answer apparently cheekily, right? They're answering with a grin. Why, what a temper you are in. They're teasing him for being upset about their refusal to obey him. Why do they need to obey him? What, most importantly, are they refusing to do? What is he asking them to do? I told them once, I told them twice, they would not listen to advice. He told them what once? The fact that he's reiterating, the fact he is telling us that he is reiterating to them. I told them once, I told them twice. Um... Now, of course, like, the entire narrative is presuming we know. They would not listen to advice. So, it's is his advice, it will be better to obey? That's, I think, his advice. I mean, that sounds like advice. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. Except, wait, we still don't know what the thing is that they're supposed to be obeying. <laughs> and then, <laughs> the awesome line... <laughs> I took a kettle, large and new, fit for the deed I had to do. <laughs> what deed? <laughs> what are you going to do with the kettle? And it's the small fish in the sea, right? So, like the kettle and the fish, it's looking grim, right? Is, is, is he going to cook them as a punishment for not obeying him? Or, uh... Is it, it will be better to obey more of a, like, you might as well come quietly or like, but oh man, the ominousness of the unspoken deed I had to do 
is really rich there, right? And then, like the oysters, uh, Majid, absolutely. Um, yeah, we had. That's why I'm thinking. He, that's why I'm almost assuming at this point that he's planning to eat the fish, right? Because apparently that's what one does uh, with one's seafood interlocutors in this book, right? Um, fit for the deed I had to do. Um, man, like the deed I had to do. You don't just talk like that, right? I mean, that has a weight to it, um, a, a, a portentous weight. Like, I'm going to do a deed. I had to do a deed. Like, I'm not looking forward to this. This gives me no pleasure to do, but it is, it is incumbent upon me to perform this unpleasant deed, right? Um, and that whatever that unknown, unspoken deed would turn out to be, apparently a kettle large and new <laughs> is what is fit. <laughs> I just... Um, I love the way that our imagination is kind of pointed and let go uh, in this in this poem. My heart went hop, my heart went thump. I filled the kettle at the pump. Then someone came and then someone came to me and said, "The little fishes are in bed." <laughs> okay, okay, um, man, these next two lines, right? <laughs> The comical, um, uh, it's almost absurd, overdramatic uh, depiction of his high emotions now that he has braced himself to do whatever deed it is, right? My heart went hop. My heart went thump. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's hilarious. That's like hilariously bad, right? Um Okay, so he's and and then the next line, I filled the kettle at the pump. That is not normally a uh, an activity of like great um agitation <laughs> and uh and all that kind of thing, right? I mean, that's funny. That's funny. Um but also still really ominous. Um now I'm thinking for sure. I mean, so on the one hand, I'm not thinking for sure he's going to be cooking the fish. But on the other hand, what else would you do with a kettle other than fill it up with water? Right? Like it's the job of a kettle is to hold water. Then someone came to me and said, the little fishes are in bed. OK, what does that mean? Is that good or is that bad? Does that mean maybe... Maybe that's what he was telling him to do in the first place. Maybe, maybe when he said, this is what I wish, what he wished just was that they would go to bed. Maybe this is a bedtime situation. He told the fish it's time. It's, you know, it's, it's lights out. Um, and, uh, they said they wouldn't. And then he said it would be better to obey. And then they're like, oh, you're really mad about this. And now he's being told that the little fishes are in bed. So all is well, and he doesn't need his kettle full of water, whatever he was going to do with the kettle full of water, maybe, right? But of course, it might not mean that at all. It might mean any number of other things, because we have no idea what he asked them for. Um, for all we know, it could be um, the little fishes are in bed, like 
that's where you should go and find them <laughs> to like meet out their kettle related punishment or whatever. Um, uh, maybe this is just instruction to facilitate his doing of the unspoken deed. Um, the fact that we, again, we don't know where it's going and we kind of can potentially see it pointing in multiple different directions, I think is, um, uh, is, is very interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's very uncertain. I said to him, I said it plain, then you must wake them up again. The messenger. So the messenger came to him and told him the fishes are in bed. Okay, so apparently he did not tell the fish to go to bed. So here we thought potentially, possibly, we had gotten some indirect evidence to tell us what the whole subject of this narrative was about. But no, no, our only lead is gone. Um, whatever it was, he told them it was clearly not, you should be in bed now. Because he tells them to go wake them up again. I said it very loud and clear. I went and shouted in his ear. But he was very stiff and proud. He said, you needn't shout so loud. Okay, wait, what are we shouting about? What are we... T Why is he going and shouting in the ear of the messenger? Um, we don't get any indication of any response from the messenger. When he said, when the narrator, when the speaker of the poem had said, then you must wake them up again. Um... But he specifies how loudly and clearly he said it and went and shouted in his ear, apparently, to say it a second time. And then the stiffness and proudness of the messenger in telling him he needn't shout so loud. And he was very proud and stiff. He said, I'll, I'd go and wake them if I took a corkscrew from the shelf. I went to wake them up myself. <laughs> That's my favorite line. <laughs> The other one might be my second favorite. Um, uh, but, um, I, if the kettle was ominous, the corkscrew is much more ominous, right? Um, what is he going to do? I, I, I could at least imagine a thing he was going to do with the uh, with the kettle. Nothing good, but I could at least imagine something, right? I. It beats me what he's going to do with a corkscrew, and I certainly don't even want to think about how you wake you wake people up from bed with a corkscrew. Um. Uh, but what's the resolution with the messenger? He's very stiff and proud. He said, you needn't shout so loud. He was very proud and stiff. He said, I'd go and wake them if, if, um, if, if what, under what circumstances would the messenger go and wake the fishes who are in bed? Well, we don't know. Because the speaker of the poem apparently doesn't listen. Um, 
and instead resolutely sets out to wake the fish up himself with a corkscrew. I suppose it's possible, Major, that you could clean the guts of a fish with a, scor- with a corkscrew. Um, that is a uh, that is a grim possibility, though I suppose no more grim than boiling them in a kettle to begin with. Um, but I wouldn't think so. I mean, I can't really claim to have gutted too many fish in my day. Uh, that's never been a thing I've done much of. However, I fancy it'd be difficult to do with a corkscrew, but um, maybe I'm wrong about that. Or maybe I've just never had the right corkscrew. Or been in the correct frame of mind. Notice the frame of mind of the speaker has been going from bad to worse. What a temper you are in, the fish were observing, initially. Uh, Until now he is shouting in the ear of the messenger who is responding to him very proudly and stiffly, right? Um, And when I found the door was locked, I pulled and pushed and kicked and knocked. By the way, that's, that's my favorite iambic tetrameter line of the poem. Four verbs, all of them the stressed syllables, with the I and then three ands. I pulled and pushed and kicked and knocked. Four monosyllabic verbs, all great action verbs, right? With alliteration built in, pulled and pushed and kicked and knocked. Lovely. So the fish have barred the door against him and he is violently attempting to enter corkscrew in hand in order to wake them up. And when I found the door was shut, I tried to turn the handle, but... And that's it. We end the poem with the conjunction. But. Um, This is the most wonderful poem about I have no idea what. Um, Think back to Alice's response to Jabberwocky. Remember what she said was, it seems to fill my head with ideas, but I'm not sure what they are. This poem does exactly the same, doesn't it? Differently, but it does exactly the same. It fills my head with ideas, but I'm not really sure what those ideas are. Um, hey, by the way, have I lost the uh, Twitch stream, I'm wondering? I haven't seen anything from folks on Twitch, and I fear I might have lost you. Um, If so, I apologize. Anyway, um, so... We get several places where the substance is merely left out, right? Um, starting with, this is what I wish, and then the because. Here's what I'm asking you to do. We don't know what it is. Here's why we're not going to do it, the fish say, and we don't know why. Um, we don't know what deed he's going to do with the kettle. We don't know how he's going to wake them with a the corkscrew. 
Um, we don't know the circumstances under which the messenger would agree to go and wake them up again. Um, we don't know what the speaker of the poem is going to do, corkscrew in hand, when he finds the door shut against him. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's... Yeah, JJ, I did lose the chat. Let's see if I can regain it. I'm not sure if I can. Anyway, um... I'm just assuming, JJ, that Arthur probably broke the chat. Uh, probably one too many puns and uh, and the Twitch chat just like, you know, curled up and shriveled away or something. I don't know. But anyhow. Um, okay. So. This entire poem is like a subject without a predicate. Right? We know who is acting, but we don't know what they're doing. We don't know any... We, we know we're being told a quite dramatic narrative, uh, including, uh, you know, high emotion and uh, 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 heated exchanges, uh, interpersonal drama, action sequences, and yet we have no idea from one end to the next what is happening in... Um, uh, in this, in this, in this poem, oh, uh, David says Arthur's taking this as a challenge. Yeah, sorry. So I, those of you who are able to jump over onto YouTube, I, can, I am seeing the YouTube chat. So um, I'm getting some secondhand uh, uh, advice, uh, commentary on the commentary that's going on in the Twitch chat. Anyhow, um, but now notice there's one more element of this poem that we still have to consider. And that is the prose bits, which I think are def very much a feature of this poem. It's the only poem that's interrupted in this way. Um, we've had lots of poetry, but this is the first one that has a running commentary, which seems like a particularly conspicuous thing, given that the poem begins by talking about commentary on itself. And the poem that is being interrupted is a poem about people being interrupted <laughs> and not listened to, right? So, okay. Between the first two couplets, when he begins singing about the song, he immediately offers a line of commentary. In winter when the fields are white, I sing this song for your delight. Only I don't sing it, he added, as an explanation. He might have gone on to say as well, and only it's not winter, and also the fields aren't white. I guess if one were to be brutally honest, one could also add, and she is experiencing no delight in this poem, which would, I believe, make the quadrifecta of uh, thereby disproving 100% of everything that was said in the first two lines. Everything about those first two lines turns out to be completely fictitious. It is not winter. The fields are not white. He is not singing this song, and she is not delighted by it. Right? So we get this sharp distance between the song about the song and the action, and its reception and the actual reception. Right? 
Now, Jeffrey, you are quite right that in the back in the world where she began, it was snowing. So maybe it's still winter because it's still winter back in her world. It doesn't seem to be winter in Looking Glass world. Um, but um, but you're right. It was winter there. So I guess maybe you could stretch a point and say the fields are white somewhere, though I guess you could always say that. Um, only I don't see, sing it. I see you don't, said Alice. If you can see whether I'm singing or not, you've sharper eyes than most, Humpty Dumpty remarked severely. Alice was silent. He shuts her up. So he comments, and then she responds to his comment. I see you don't. As if she... And this is one of her... One of Alice's little conversational gambits things, right? Um, That is... It seems to have appeared to her that a, a response was indicated here, since he's addressing her. I see you don't. She's being polite. And he's annoyed, clearly, which seems clear from the severity of his remark, right? Um, and he points out how inane her comment was. If you see, if you can see whether I'm singing or not, like, like she can visually tell the difference between recitation and song. Um, I guess if she can see the words that he's speaking and can tell the difference between music and, and, and verse. Um, yeah. Yeah. So he squashes her response. The clear impression that I get from Humpty Dumpty's response to her is that she is responding with a polite nothing. And he's annoyed that she's responding with a polite nothing, as if she's thinking they're in a conversation. And in what he's doing is reciting with commentary. But although she is silent here, she does not seem to pick up the cue. In spring, when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean. Thank you very much, said Alice. Don't think she was supposed to respond there either. So, the fact that he begins his poem with this sort of meta poetic thing that we were talking about before, from the beginning, confuses the context of the poem. Alice seems to be confused as to whether or not conversation is supposed to be. <laughs> is this a conversation or is this a poetic performance in which I'm supposed to sit very patiently and listen? She seemed prepared for that. Now, again, it's his fault. He's the one who interrupted his own poem with what sounded like, you know, a conversational remark. And she is continuing in that vein, despite his severity. He ignores this comment and continues going through autumn and summer. And then she responds again. Notice what she's responding to is an imperative. That is... He's giving her a command. In autumn, when the leaves are brown, take pen and ink and write it down. He's telling her what to do. Uh, uh, Okay. I I will if I can remember it so long, said Alice. This is her being like, I am not only being attentive, I am processing what you're saying, and I am taking it to heart. Absolutely. I I will take pen and ink and write it down in autumn. Just like you say, if I remember it. All the way to autumn. And then Humpty Dumpty explicitly calls her out. You needn't go on making remarks like that. They're not sensible, and they put me out. I'm trying to recite a poem here. This is not a conversation. 
So this is a bad start when we're not really sure when nobody seems to be really sure exactly what is happening here, despite the fact that, as I say, as a poetic performance, it is in some senses extremely poetical, very, very prominent rhythm and rhyme. Uh, Nobody could hear somebody saying this and mistake it for something other than a poem. There are some poems that you can recite and mistake them for prose, even if their rhythm is really insistent and even if they contain rhyme, such as, for instance, all of the prose speeches of Tom Bombadil in The Fellowship of the Ring, where he is maintaining his meter and his rhyme scheme throughout his conversation, and a large majority of readers never even notice that. Um, so it's possible to mistake something like that for prose, but this, this would be hard. This would be hard. Um, uh, yes, Jeffrey, you're right. Uh, Mr. Dumpty wants all things to be sensible, uh, which is why he went out of his way to explain that he wasn't singing. Uh, but then the poem as a whole is not sensible. Well, no, it's not, however nonsensical in the same way that Jabberwocky was by any means, right? Um, It's a different kind of experiment. Though again, similar, isn't it? If Jabberwocky was an experiment in how to convey meaning through words whose meaning you don't know, right? Can you do that? Can you tell a story? if you don't actually understand the words? Um, Or rather, to say a similar thing another way, Jabberwocky experiments with, or explores, perhaps I should say, what is it about words that does convey meaning? Um, And can you convey meaning while divorced completely from social, um, like, the social contract, mutual agreement upon the meaning of words, right? Um, Here, there's another experiment here. Can you tell a story? Can you convey a story without ever revealing what the story is? He's not messing with words here. All of his words are perfectly sensible. Um, he has put it in a poetic framework that is simple and insistent. Um, yeah, Jocelyn, I am sorry. Yeah. And I am not getting the Twitch chat at all. My, uh, feed, which feeds me the Twitch chat is not, I don't know why. Um, so I apologize. I'm not actually seeing the Twitch chat, which I normally am. Um, Apologies. I can see the YouTube chat. I can see your chat there on Facebook. I can't see the Twitch chat, and I don't know why. But I don't want to pause things in the middle and do, uh, you know, uh, try to do uh, troubleshooting on that. Um, so, yeah, best thing I'd say, switch over to YouTube, and you can do uh, uh, comments there. I am getting those. Um, okay. Alice interrupts again, but notice about what's different about Alice's next interruption. So Humpty Dumpty's um, criticism that her remarks are not sensible and put him out, 
that is to say, throw me off on my recitation. Um, that's the transitional moment. The transitional moment from the seasonal meta-poetic contemplation of the first four couplets down to the beginning of the narrative. So the next time she interrupts, she's interrupting the actual narrative. And here she's not mistaking it for conversation at all. She's not really merely making remarks, as Humpty Dumpty says. She's waving the white flag. Alice has noticed that something important seems to be missing from this story. I'm afraid I don't quite understand. What is happening here? What does the guy wish? Why can they not... But notice how this connects together. Why don't we understand? The dash at the end of that line, we cannot do it, sir, because... I'm afraid I don't quite understand, said Alice. Makes it, makes it look like Alice interrupted the poem. Like he was about to explain the reason why the fishes can't obey whatever the command is. But unfortunately, he didn't because Alice interrupted him. Except that can't be the reason. We know that's not the reason. How do we know that's not the reason? Because of the rhythm and rhyme of the poem. The little fish's answer was, I cannot do it, sir, because... Because is, in fact, clearly, demonstrably, what that line was building up to. Um, now, it's possible that as Humpty Dumpty has foreboded, she has put him out and therefore he skipped a line or two explain, you know, in the, the ne maybe in the next line, the fishes were going to explain why. And then she interrupted him and he doesn't pick up, you know, he's, he, he, he drops a couple lines and, uh, and comes back later on. It's possible, but I don't think so because of his response. It gets easier further on. Oh, don't worry. If you're confused now, it will all become clear. Will it, Humpty? Then we get the longest uninterrupted stretch. The ominous, the ominous business of the kettle. And the hop-thump line with the brilliant juxtaposition. I filled the kettle at the pump. Um, then we get another interruption from Alice. When Humpty Dumpty raises his voice almost to a scream, I said it very loud and clear. I went and shouted in his ear. And he's shouting not exactly in Alice's ear, but not far from her ear either. She's shuddering as she's thinking, I wouldn't have been the messenger for anything. It's quite enough, apparently, to have Humpty Dumpty shouting at her from however many feet they are apart. Uh, without having him shouting straight in her ear, she thinks, quite sensibly. But notice one of the effects of this is to sort of two things, right? First, uh, it interrupts the poem again. What does he shout? Well, we'll never know what he shouts. Because just when it sounded like we were going to get like a quotation, I went and shouted in his ear, and he's shouting it, right? As if to set up for the shouted thing. I went and shouted in his ear, and 
another couplet of the thing I shouted, which explains the whole thing, right? About why they have to wake up, what he wants them to do, what the whole premise of the story is about, maybe. He's shouting it at the messenger. Um, but we never hear it because he never says it even though it sounded like that's what he was building up to. Once again, the prose interrupts it and stops it from happening, so that we, in fact, never hear. But, of course, the second thing that this interruption does is emphasize the blurring of lines um, between the speaker of the poem and Humpty Dumpty himself. It's a first-person narrative. So he's been saying I all the way through, speaking as if he the reciter of the poem were, you know, is the speaker of the poem, is the, the performer of the action here, um, as if this were in some sense autobiographical. Um, but of course it needn't be so. One can recite a poem which is in the first person, and it doesn't mean it's autobiographical, right? It's just a first person narrative. Um, but by shouting in the ear of his audience when he's talking about shouting in his, right? I mean, like that, that it becomes harder and harder to separate Humpty Dumpty from the speaker of the poem, right? Anyway, so we've resumed never hearing what he shouted. And then we get to the last line. And when I found the door was shut, I tried to turn the handle, but there was a long pause. Is that all? Alice timidly asked. Alice does not interrupt. Um, notice that twice in the last section, ending with the last line, we get a dash. We get a, an interruption mark. The first time, nothing interrupts him. He just stops. And he was very proud and stiff. He said, I'd go and wake them. If, if what? Never says what the if is. And the Humpty Dumpty just leaves it there and doesn't tell us. And then, of course, the final line. I tried to turn the handle, but and there's no interruption. There's silence as Alice is waiting to see what happens next and where the poem is finally headed. Nowhere. That's all. Goodbye. No explanation. Despite his promises, again, I, I suppose he only promised to, ex to tell her what he means when spring comes, so he's still got some time, apparently. But, uh... It's one of my favorite endings of a poem. And when I found the door was shut, I tried to turn the handle, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, J.J.'s remembering Humpty Dumpty beginning with, The piece I'm going to repeat was written entirely for your amusement. Um, and J.J.'s wondering, is that a generic you, or was it specifically for Alice? Well, Alice took it to mean herself. This is why she sort of glumly settles down to listen to the poem, which she did not want to listen to. She was quite done with poetry. Um, she takes it as meaning her, 
that it was written entirely for her amusement. Um, but yes, the I and you from the beginning of the poem does uh, kind of invite that question, doesn't it? Are we, uh, are we being implicated <laughs> in the poem as well? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Now, Jeffrey, although I can agree that it has the sense of him making it up as he goes, in one way that's true, but in another way it's not true. The um, scantiness of the story could certainly be explained in that way. That he himself doesn't really even know what it's about. He just likes a lot of shouting and knocking on doors, right? Um, and so if, as so long as people are shouting at each other, he doesn't really need a premise, right? Um, but the structure of the poem speaks very strongly against it. He's making this sound easy, but rhythm and rhyme, this pure, this uninterrupted, does not just happen. Um, a poem... If the poem has perfect rhythm and rhyme, those would be arguments against rather than for the, poet, the poem being more extemporaneous. Let me say that a different way to make it a little more clearer. The more perfect the rhythm and rhyme, the less extemporaneous it is likely to be. Um, yeah. Now, it's possible, Jeffrey, that he's a really good freestyle rapper. Uh, but I would say that's actually... It's even true with freestyle rap. If you compare and contrast freestyle rap, even very good freestyle rap, um, with pre-written lines. Exactly what is different is the, the structure is much simpler, usually. I mean, again, there are some people who are very, very good at freestyle, and I'm not trying to knock that. Um, but, um, but the structure tends to be much simpler um, and much less, and less perfect, because less, you're squeezing something into a shape as you go along. Um, less ornate. But, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't anybody who could extemporaneously compose a perfect, again, syllable perfect for the whole time verse, you know, song and iambic tetrameter um, with the, you know, perfect rhyme schemes like this. But, um, yeah, and Emily says he's a poetic prodigy with zero imagination. Perhaps so. Uh, Majid, I love your uh, allegorical interpretation of this as, uh, uh, you know, you're doing this sort of quasi-spiritual uh, allegorization of it uh, as a, uh, the speaker being a, 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 a high church uh, Advent preacher <laughs> with an unresponsive congregation. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. I don't, I don't clearly see it uh, in the poem, but but I think it's a fun idea. Um, 
again, the poem is a... It's a kind of play, right? Here's another way to think about it. As a poem, it's almost perfect. As a story, it's an almost perfect failure. Like, it's a story that tells us everything except the story. Um, it's, a, it's a poem that proceeds perfectly except for accomplishing anything that it sets out to do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Mrs. Manrique, yes, people have loved this book. Uh, I don't, I mean, I, I can't remember reading, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever read any contemporary reactions to this poem in particular. Um, but yes, Through the Looking Glass has been uh, loved and appreciated from day one. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I said I think that th Through the Looking Glass is somewhere between five and ten times better than, uh, than Alice in Wonderland. Um, and uh, just one of the... I mean, I would put Through the Looking Glass on my short list of, uh, like works of comedic genius, uh, that I've ever experienced. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Of course, you see the final irony at the end. Alice wanted no poem. Even with Tweedledum and Tweedledee, she was quite, <laughs> she was quite disappointed to hear that they had chosen the walrus and the carpenter to recite to her because it was the longest one they knew. Um, and she did not think that was a high recommendation of it, in her opinion, right? Um, and uh, uh, she, at the beginning of this poem, tried to get out of hearing him say it at all. And then at the end of the poem, she's wondering if there isn't more. And he who insisted on reciting her the poem dismisses her with no more poem without even completing, a, completing that last sentence. I mean, come on. The conjunction but has to be one of the funniest words you can end a poem with, right? I mean, it doesn't get more unresolved than ending a story with but. I tried to turn the handle, but especially since we're getting into all this violent action, like nothing has really occurred. There's been talking and a little bit of yelling. I mean, I guess he did also fill a kettle for some ominous and unknown reason and pick up a corkscrew for some even more ominous but equally unknown reason. Um, but now he's knocking at the door and he's pushing and pulling and kicking and knocking and he tries to turn the handle, but I mean, like the action is is escalating, right? We're building this momentum towards nothing. Goodbye. Brilliant. Just gorgeous. Yeah, Jeffrey says, if Jabberwocky was a semiotic exercise in signifiers without signified, this is almost an exercise in signified without signifiers. Yeah, it is almost the, almost the inverse, isn't it? Of, uh, of Jabberwocky. Um, in Jabberwocky, there was a definite story. And you could tell what the story was, even though you couldn't understand the words. Here we can understand all the words. 
but we can't tell what the story is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, David says, uh, it's a bit like ending on unless though that makes more sense when the Lorax does it. Yes, exactly. Um, when the Lorax ends on unless there is a clear, uh, it is, uh, it is ending with a pregnant implication, but that, Im- that implication is clear and made clearer by the illustrations, right? Um, we get no such assistance here. Yeah. Okay. Now, the poem is left hanging. Remember the context of this entire chapter, where we started the chapter. We started the chapter with her coming in and seeing Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall and just waiting for Humpty Dumpty to have his great fall. And we got the open acknowledgement of the promise about the horses and men. We know that the nursery rhyme is relevant. We've just, she's just seen from her own experience with Tweedledum and Tweedledee the prophetic quality of these nursery rhymes in this place. She knows what's going to happen. There's a sense, in other words, in which this entire chapter, this entire conversation with Humpty Dumpty has been a poem that has ended with the word but. But when is the egg going to fall off the wall? Alice waited a minute to see if he would speak again. But as he never opened his eyes or took any further notice of her, she said goodbye once more. And getting no answer to this, she quietly walked away. But she couldn't help saying to herself as she went, of all the unsatisfactory, she repeated this aloud, as it was a great comfort to have such a long word to say, of all the unsatisfactory people I ever met. She never finished the sentence, for at this moment a heavy crash shook the forest from end to end. Um... Notice how her conversation to herself there at the end mimics the poem that he was just saying. Of all the unsatisfactory, dash. And then she does almost complete it. Of all the unsatisfactory people I've I ever met, what? There's not been a subject in noun to this sentence yet. What exactly is she going to say about Humpty Dumpty? She takes satisfaction in the fragment that she has uttered in, in particular, in having such a polysyllabic word as unsatisfactory uh, to use to label the, equa- the to, to label the experience, to label the conversation. Um, but she's interrupted by Humpty Dumpty, just as she was interrupting Humpty Dumpty. She never gets to the substance of her dissatisfaction with Humpty Dumpty. Because Humpty Dumpty finally falls off the wall. <laughs> a heavy crash shook the forest from end to end. Exactly what she was afraid of from the very beginning. We have seen the turn in Alice as she began with great solicitation for poor Humpty Dumpty and great concern that he was going to fall off the wall. And then she turns away in great dissatisfaction only to have him now, finally, <laughs> apparently fall off the wall with a great crash 
Um, we have finally, just at the end of the chapter, achieved the resolution. So again, in the context of this, the final resolution of that unresolved action of the nursery rhyme that has loomed over the entire chapter, this is, like to me, like the final joke on his poem, which never resolves, which we never find. Um, what was the thing? Even though that thing seemed to be violent, right? That thing seemed to be troubling. And now he has... Uh, um, I get what... And this had all been left hanging. But now Humpty Dumpty has fallen. And we end with... Here you go, Arthur. A pun. Well, we begin the next chapter with the pun. But it's really the end of this sequence. The next moment, soldiers came running through the wood, at first in twos and threes, then ten or twenty together, and at last in such crowds that they seemed to fill the whole forest. Alice got behind a tree for fear of being run over, and watched them go by. She thought that in all her life she had never seen soldiers so uncertain on their feet. They were always tripping over something or other, and whenever one went down, several more always fell over him, so that the ground was soon covered with little heaps of men." What's the pun? There's a there's an extended pun being made here. Hint, I've been preparing you for this throughout our conversation today. Why are all the soldiers, why are all the king's men tripping and tumbling all over each other? Remember the poem? Oh, shoot. Hang on a second. I need to... Uh, let me get it. Where did the poem go? There it is. Remember? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty in his place again. That last line is much too long for the poetry. Remember? So, we're now with the soldiers in the aftermath of Humpty Dumpty's great fall the crash that's been heard throughout the forest. And all the king's men, king's horses show up and do a little bit better. But all the king's men show up and are very uncertain on their feet and are tripping all over each other. Get it? It's a pun. There are too many feet in that last line. Exactly. The pun is on poetic feet. She, uh, she uttered the prophetic poem, just like she did with Tweedledum and Tweedledee. She says the nursery rhyme, either to herself or aloud, and what she says comes to pass. She says the Humpty Dumpty poem, but she screws it up. She doesn't get the last line right. That last line is much too long for the poetry. In other words, there are too many feet in it. Um, and as a result, that last line trips 
all over itself. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty in his place again. That is the poetic equivalent of falling flat on your face. And that's exactly what happens. Just not only that, not only that, like her recitation not only predicts the action, the things that are going to happen, Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall, having a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men not putting Humpty Dumpty together again. It not only determines that, but the manner of her recitation seems to have determined the manner of their appearance. All the king's horses and all the king's men successfully show up. Um, but they, they can't do anything. They can't get anything done. Um, and uh, they're stumbling and falling all over the place. Because the poetic line describing their arrival had too many feet in it. And is tripping and falling all over the place. And so do they, therefore. Um, it would seem that Alice's recitation has even more power than perhaps we were thinking before. Isn't that fun? Come on, that's fun. Um, <laughs> so what does this mean? And um, what does this mean? And what does this suggest about or sort of have to do with the poem that we just heard? Um, maybe it's best that we don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, look, The Walrus and the Carpenter was a pretty unpleasant poem, right? Um, I think if um, Humpty Dumpty had been more explicit about the action of his poem, it might have been even worse. I mean, it sounded worse. I mean, the corkscrew for crying out loud. Um, yeah. Soldiers tumbling all over each other. Little heaps of men. Okay. Um, let's start with the White King. She goes and sees the king, whose men and horses are going to try to save Humpty Dumpty. Um, the White King is very proud of the fact that he's sent all of them. There are so many horses and men that uh, Alice has to hide behind a tree to keep from getting trampled by them. Um, and she says there must be thousands, and he, he confirms that there were, what, 4,200 and some? Um, yeah, good. Jeffrey says that Mr. Dumpty's poem had exactly the right number of feet in it, but he couldn't make anything happen in it. No, no, he could not. Um, so you're right. In that sense, it's the opposite of Alice's poem, isn't it? She messed up her poem, but everything happened. But she makes everything happen, right? Everything she described happens, happens not only exactly as she described it. Well, no, literally exactly as she describes it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. All right, hang on. I'm done with the other poem here. Um. <clears throat> So here's the king beginning to explain how he has, uh, he sent almost all of his horses and men, not quite all of his men. As I haven't sent the two messengers either. They're both gone to the town. Just look along the road and tell me if you can see either of them. I see nobody on the road, said Alice. I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody. And at that distance too. Why, it's as much as I can do to see real people by this light. 
All this was lost on Alice, who was still looking intently along the road, shading her eyes with one hand. "'I see somebody now,' she exclaimed at last. "'But he's coming very slowly. And what curious attitudes he goes into!' For the messenger kept skipping up and down and wriggling like an eel as he came along, with his great hands spread out like fans on each side. Okay. So we have... Right, so Jocelyn was wondering, is it Alice's fault that Humpty Dumpty didn't get fixed? Well, who dreamed it, after all? Um, what is the cause and effect there, Jocelyn? Um, Alice seems to have a strong cause and effect. Remember, like, the remembering forward and backward? She is remembering forward again with her verse. But does that mean she's causing it? Because time doesn't always work in one direction, doesn't only work in one direction here. So maybe she's not causing it. She's just remembering it ahead through the nursery rhyme. But, of course, there's also the question of who's responsible for it? The nursery rhyme. She didn't make that up. The action is inevitable not because she said it, but to her. Right? Because she knows the nursery rhyme. She's read it in a book. It wasn't the history of England, but it was a book that she read it in. Right? So, who caused Humpty Dumpty's discomfiture? Was it Alice? Because she said it? Was it whoever made up the nursery rhyme? For whatever reason, they did that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Jeffrey, you're right. We see a, a second emphasis on the acuity of Alice's vision. She can not only see the difference in his words, Humpty Dumpty's words, as to whether it's a song or a recitation, um, but she can see nobody. And at that distance, too. Yes, the king also uh, is astounded at her vision, though with less severity and more, um, uh, more uh, uh, genuine admiration, apparently. Um, but anyway, Jocelyn, just sorry, just to finish that up. The question of cause and effect and time going both directions, we can see how that is continuing to be at play here, right? But in addition, this question of, like, who wrote the book? Who wrote the story? Um, who's responsible? Is it Alice's fault? Or is it not Alice's fault? Um, Tweedledum and Tweedledee tried to tell her that she was just a kind of thing in the Red King's dream and that she's not real. She's not real. All of them in Looking Glass Land are real. She's the figment. Or is she real? And the rest of them are figments in Looking Glass Land. As seems likely to us, right? Perhaps. Um, but again, that... I would suggest seems to me a parallel between this issue of the nursery rhyme and causality. Um, yeah. Okay. But we're going to come back to this. Probably not tonight, but we'll set it up here tonight. Um, we get a, the King's response about seeing nobody. Um, the, sharp remarks of Humpty Dumpty from the very beginning of their conversation when he was taking her conversational remarks to be riddles at the beginning 
Um, and then making a conversational, then making himself what sounded like a conversational remark, but turned out actually to be a riddle. Um, and then getting annoyed at her conversational remarks when she was responding to his poem as conversation instead of as poem, right? So we saw, we saw several of that kind of business going on with Humpty Dumpty and Alice. In the, with the White King, we're immediately in a similar place um, where she makes a, a simple comment, I see nobody on the road. And he, once more, as we've seen so many times, takes her comment at face value not severely, not giving her a hard time, not establishing this like oppositional uh, kind of antagonistic posture that Humpty Dumpty was from the beginning with Alice. Um, uh, he's just marveling at the eyesight that she must have, right? But it sets us kind of, it kind of prepares us for what is to come. Uh, it prompts us to pay attention to words in a particular way. Um, and that seems to be what we're being set up for by her comment about the curious attitudes that he goes into. Um, the messenger clearly has a rather pronounced attitude problem, skipping up and down, wriggling like an eel, uh, his great hands spread out like fans on each side. I'm not even sure I can picture. Maybe we need to do a reenactment. I'm not sure I can picture how the messenger is, in fact, comporting himself here. Um, the king objects. Not at all, said the king. He's an Anglo-Saxon messenger, and those are Anglo-Saxon attitudes. He only does them when he's happy. His name is Haya. He pronounced it so as to rhyme with mayor, though... I believe, to rhyme with how a British person would say mayor, which is without the R that we would give it here in America. Um, so, mayor. Uh, are you going to run for mayor? Right? So, hair, I think, is how it's... Uh, hair is how... It, when he's saying rhymes with mayor, he's not telling us to end it with an R. He's telling us how the, how the vowels go. Hair. So, it's not haya, in other words. Which you might think it is haya. But it's not Haya, it's Haya, apparently. Okay, fine. His name is Haya. I love my love with an H, Alice couldn't help beginning, because he is happy. I hate him with an H because he is hideous. I fed him with, with, with ham sandwiches and hay. His name is Haya, and he lives, he lives on the hill the king remarked simply, without the least idea that he was joining in the game, while Alice was still hesitating for the name of a town beginning with H. Okay, so first, um, the king says not at all in response to Alice's uh, uh, comment about how curious are the attitudes that he goes into. And the king says not at all, that is to say they're not at all curious how he's acting is not at all strange. Not at all. He's an Anglo-Saxon messenger, and those are Anglo-Saxon attitudes. Perfectly natural for him to strike these particular attitudes, whatever those attitudes are. Um, I feel that this is a joke I'm not getting. Um, this has all the feeling to me of 
a joke which would have been quite funny in the middle of the 19th century, but which is being lost on me here at the remove from what I think it has to do with um, uh, things like Anglo-Saxon values and stuff like that. Um, People in the 19th century like to talk about Anglo-Saxon things in this way, um, usually meaning like, you know, traditional British things. Uh, And I, the feeling that I have is that that phrase, Anglo-Saxon attitudes, um, uh, must be a phrase. Poses and Anglo-Saxon carvings, it's possible. It's possible. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I'm only guessing in trying to figure out exactly what the joke is. I f- it seems to me that the premise, I feel like it almost has to be a, 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 to be a pun in a pun the the pun on attitude, right? Um, because that would be similar. Um, uh, that would be similar for um, the the use of see and so like uh, when she says I can see nobody, she doesn't literally mean. I am seeing nothing, right? It's, it, the nothingness is what I am seeing. Um, as if, you know, because our vision would have to be acute indeed in order to see nothing, right? Um, the pun between attitude, like your, you know, point of view, your perspective, your general outlook and uh, uh, temperament, and attitude in the sense of your bodily posture, this is a word we don't use that word in this sense much anymore in the 21st century. Um, uh, but they use it much more in the 19th century. You can, um, like for instance, you can hear the word attitude. The word attitude almost always means this in like a, in, in Jane Austen, when someone is talking about their attitude, it means like your posture. Um, like if you are sitting, uh, in, uh, an attitude of attentiveness, that means, you know, you're sitting on the edge of your chair, leaning forward, right? Uh, it's, it's about, it's about posture and how you are physically behaving at the moment. Um, uh, so I have to think that this has something to do with, uh, one kind of attitude and the other kind of attitude she is commenting on his attitudes like he's posturing himself in extremely bizarre to her ways right um and then he comes in with his no it's he's an anglo-saxon messenger and those are anglo-saxon attitudes um yeah um good you're right david um uh for uh um if you are a pilot um you would still use the word attitude in that same way. Yes. Yes. Your attitude, the attitude controls, control how the, the plane is, uh, is, you know, situating itself. Yeah. Yeah. If you're changing the attitude of the plane, you're changing the posture of the plane. Yep. Absolutely. Or spaceship. Indeed. Um, yes. Anyway. So I don't understand the joke. Um, I would welcome anyone who could explain this joke to me better. But the, I but that's the sense that I get of what's going on there. But this is not the primary reason that I wanted to bring this up. 
The reason I'm bringing this up is that it's a segue to this next business. And this is where we'll pick up next time. We'll pick up next time with the little word game that Alice, um, that Alice plays here. Um, I love my love with an H. So next time we will begin with, I love my love with an H. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks everybody. See you guys next week. I should, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be around next week. Um, yeah, I got a family thing, but I'll be back by Wednesday. I should be back Tuesday night too. So should have no problems on Wednesday. Anyway, thanks everybody for joining me tonight. Much fun as always. Love that poem. Uh, and looking forward to the lion and the unicorn. Maybe we'll get to start the white knight. I'm not sure. You might go ahead and read chapter eight, just in case we get so far, um, which I think we might do next time, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, thanks for joining me, everybody. See you guys soon. Bye now.